Well, we finish up 2 Kings tonight, and we'll begin about chapter 23, if you want to open up your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 23, and let's pray together for a moment. Father, I want to thank you and praise you for determining that we should come to you by faith. Father, rather than do it any other way, that you would take the time to allow us to learn the language of eternity so that we can speak as you speak and and think in absolute and complete trust and dependency on you. And thank you, Father, for your word and for the fact that you don't give us a half sheet with four or five bullet points, but that, Lord, you lay the whole thing out for us and you invite us into time spent with you, times like these. You invite us, Father, not solely to a destination, but to a walk, so that by the time we reach the destination, by the time we break the tape and cross the goal line, we will have such a deep and abiding relationship with you through our Lord Jesus that it will make the goal so sweet and so right. Well, thank you for your patience, Lord. In the same way that you've taught so many of us as parents to be patient, to grow with our children and teach and, and help them to understand life and the world around them, so you as our Heavenly Father have been so patient with us walking throughout history, Lord. Thank you tonight that we have your word before us. That both the history and the accuracy of it is great, but but Father, more than that, that we have the determination of your Holy Spirit for the things that we need to know. The things that serve as examples to us, Lord. The things also, Father, that serve to change our direction and to keep us on course so that we wouldn't turn to the right or to the left, but that we would walk directly to you. And we thank you for walking with us, Father. We ask now as we finish out the book of Kings that you would guide our study tonight and root these things deeply into our hearts and into our minds, preparing us all the while, Father, for our great King Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, the year is 609 B.C. Josiah is dead. And with the death of King Josiah died the last hope for a revived kingdom of Judah. Four men will follow Josiah on the throne. It's a weakened throne in the final 23 years of the kingdom. Two will be Josiah's sons. The third one will be Josiah's grandson. And finally, a third son of Josiah's will round out the 20 kings of Judah sitting on the throne. Jehoahaz. Jehoahaz was king number 17 in Judah. He was the son of Josiah. He does little other than warm the throne for three months until Pharaoh Necho of Egypt throws him into prison. And then the next son of Josiah, another son, Jehoiakim, the 18th king of Judah, he takes the throne. He's set up by Pharaoh Necho as a puppet king. But Jehoiakim is going to die in the first wave of the Babylonian conquest. That's going to be about 605 B.C. 
The third of these four kings that we'll see tonight, Jehoiachin, not to be confused with Jehoiakim, and it's easy to get the two confused. There's Jehoiakim first, and then Jehoiachin next. He's number 19 in the kings of Judah. He's Jehoiakim's son. He's Josiah's grandson. And he will take the throne for three months before he's carried off in the second wave of Babylonian subjugation in 597 B.C. And then finally, the last king of Judah, a man by the name of Zedekiah, he's number 20, Josiah's youngest son. And before we finish 2 Kings, the third and final wave will pound Judah in 586 B.C. as Babylon destroys the temple and Jerusalem and takes the people into captivity. Zedekiah will see his son slaughtered before his eyes, right before his eyes are put out. Well, let's begin with the end of the second son of Josiah, Jehoiakim, back in chapter 23, verse 34. Pharaoh made Eliakim, the son of Josiah, king in the place of Josiah his father, and changed his name to Jehoiakim. But he took Jehoahaz away and brought him to Egypt, and he died there. So Jehoiakim gave the silver and gold to Pharaoh, but he taxed the land in order to give the Pharaoh at the command, give the money at the command of the Pharaoh. He exacted the silver and gold from the people of the land, each according to his valuation, to give it to Pharaoh Necho. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king. He reigned 11 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Zebida, the daughter of Pedaiah of Rumah. He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. Like so many kings before him, and unlike his father Josiah, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim was an evil dude. I want to give you quickly some highlights as we finish out chapter 30, 23 and before we go into 24, some highlights of Jehoiakim's life. Some things to jot down if you're a note taker. The first one is he imposed a heavy taxation on the people. Jehoiakim imposed a heavy taxation. This is not the way of the Lord. God is not into high taxes. In this political season, you can work that out however you wish. God's plan for Israel was not heavy. It was always completely fair. God's plan, as we've talked about before, was a flat tax. Equal across the board for all the people. It was a percentage. So that no matter what anybody made, it was fair. You see, 10% is 10%. Whether you make $100,000 in a year or $10,000 in a year, 10% is still 10%. God is into equality and into fairness. And this is part of the reason I personally, personally like the concept of tithing in a church fellowship. I've talked about tithing before. There are all kinds of perspectives and ideas as to whether or not tithing is something that should be done or should be encouraged. Some churches are very legalistic about it. I'm not legalistic about it. I don't know what anybody here gives. I don't want to know. But I believe in the concept of tithing. And here's another reason why. This is one we've never touched on before. And that is the fairness of tithing. And I want you to consider this. I'm going to read to to you from 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Just listen to what Paul says here. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 1. He said, Brother, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. But in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of the participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. 
So we urge Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would complete in you this gracious work as well. Paul writes, Just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work as well. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. I give my opinion in this matter, for this is to your advantage. Now let me point this out. This is Paul's opinion. It's very interesting when we get into the New Testament, because the whole concept of the tithe is an Old Testament concept originally. The 10% was required of the people. When we get into the New Testament and we come under the law of grace, and suddenly there's no requirement anymore. There's no exacting demand where the Father says, you must and you will do this. He says, no, I'm going to leave it up to your liberality. I'm going to let you look at the grace that I've given you, and you decide what you want to give. And so Paul gives his opinion in the matter. He says, this is to your advantage. Who were the first to begin a year ago, not only to do this, but also to desire to do it. To do what? He's talking about giving. And he says, now finish doing it. So that there, just as there was the readiness to desire, there may also be the completion of it by your ability. For if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Now listen to this. This is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of, Paul says, equality. Now what's Paul doing here? He's talking about another group of churches. He's talking about a group of churches that do not have what the church in Corinth has. And he's saying they have been incredibly generous, giving even above and beyond what they are able to give, giving out of their poverty. So you in Corinth, how do you respond to that? Paul encourages them to respond with equality. He says, at this present time, your abundance can be a supply for their need. So that their abundance also may become a supply for your need, that there may be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much. And he who gathered little had no lack. Unfortunately, in most churches, the weight of the giving is borne on the shoulders of a few. And that's just fact. It's not guilt tripping. It's just a reality. In any given church, in every church I've ever been involved with, and I hope this doesn't reflect on me, but every church that I've ever been in ministry with, the large amount of giving always comes from 8-10% to of the fellowship. And the rest ride on the coattails of the giving of a few. And that is not God's way. God's way is the way of equality. That's why I like the tithe. Because if you make $10 in a week, you can give 10% a dollar. If you make $100 in a week, you can still give 10% $10. It's equal across the board. And the Lord sets this picture up for us. Yes, beginning it in the Old Testament. And I believe repeating it, encouraging it at least, in the New. He says this is fair for everybody. So that the weight of the giving in any generous church is not borne on the shores of a few. But is stretched across the entire body. Everybody sharing the equality of the giving. Jehoiakim's taxation was unfair. It wasn't a shared generosity, and in fact, he was the personal beneficiary. This was a a percentage tax based on everybody's valuation. They went in and looked at what people had and said, you have more, you can give more. You're rich, you need to give more than the person. And the reality is, when you do it on a percentage basis, the whole idea of the tithe, if, if you have more, you are giving more in terms of dollar amount, 
But you're giving exactly the same in terms of percentage as somebody else. Equality across the board. Well, Jehoiakim, not only did he impose a heavy taxation, but he was lining his pockets with the suffering of Judah. Number two, Jehoiakim installed a luxurious palace and built the workers for it. In the waning days of Judah, as the armies of Babylon were shoring up on to the south and to the, to the east and were about to come and pounce, Jehoiakim can't even see it because he is so, so greedy. Jeremiah tells us the following. And Jeremiah was the prophet there at the end, the last days of Judah. He wrote in chapter 22, verse 13, Woe to him who builds his house without righteousness and his upper rooms without justice, who uses his neighbor's services without pay and does not give him his wages. And it's a scathing condemnation of Jehoiakim. Jeremiah goes on to say, Woe to him who says, I will build myself a roomy house with spacious upper rooms and cut out its windows, paneling it with cedar and painting it with bright red. Do you become a king because you are competing in cedar? Jeremiah did not like Jehoiakim. He imposed a heavy taxation. He installed a luxurious palace and and stole the money from the workers not paying them. And number three, Jehoiakim instigated instigated the persecution of the prophets. Jehoiakim hated Jeremiah and went after him. He even killed the prophet named Uriah. Jeremiah 26 verse 20 tells us indeed there was a man who prophesied in the name of the Lord, Uriah the son of Shemaiah from Kiriath-Jerim. And he prophesied against this city and against this land words similar to all those of Jeremiah. When the king Jehoiakim and all his mighty men and all the officials heard his words, then the king sought to put him to death. But Uriah heard, and he was afraid, and he fled, and he went to Egypt. But king Jehoiakim sent men to Egypt, and they brought Uriah up from Egypt and led him to king Jehoiakim, who slew him with a sword and cast his dead body into the burial place of the common people. Watch where Jehoiakim ends up himself when he dies. We'll get there in just a second. He instigated the persecution of the prophets. This was an evil man. Matthew 5.11 Jesus said, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And we see throughout history people persecute the truth. When a prophet stands up and prophesies truth, they were persecuted for it. Indeed, Jeremiah was almost killed, except he was, he was protected. He was hidden away several times from Jehoiakim. But Uriah did not bear so well. Why was Jehoiakim so against the prophets? Because number four, Jehoiakim was ignorant of the word. He didn't know the word of God. I've said before, if you're ignorant of the word, it's typically because you ignore the word. To be ignorant is to ignore. And that's what Jehoiakim did. He ignored the word. He wouldn't listen to the reading of the word. In fact, Jeremiah's scroll, the actual book of Jeremiah that we have, written out in a scroll, had been read to the people. And one of Jehoiakim's men heard it. And it was brought then and read before the king. Listen to how he reacted. This is Jeremiah 36, verse 22. The king was sitting in the winter house in the ninth month with a fire burning in the hearth before him when Yehudi had read three or four columns and the king cut it with a scribe's knife and threw it into the fire that was in the hearth until all the scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the hearth. Yet the king and all his servants who heard all these words were not afraid, nor did they rend their garments. Even though Elnathan and Deliah and Gamariah pleaded with the king not to burn the scroll, he would not listen to them. And the king commanded Jeremiel, the king's son, 
Serahiah the son of Azrael and Shalimiah the son of Abdiel to seize Baruch the scribe and Jeremiah the prophet but the Lord hid them he had the prophecy of Jeremiah in his hand and his response to it was to shred it and burn it he was ignorant of the word no wonder he hated the prophet so much no wonder he installed a luxurious palace out of his own greed no wonder he, he imposed that tax on the people he was ignorant of the things of God he didn't know what the Lord desired for his people his ears were close to the word and Judah was fast unraveling by the way because of all of this number five and last one with Jehoiakim and I'm moving quickly because I don't want to spend a lot of time with him but Jehoiakim becomes irrelevant to the kingdom Jehoiakim becomes irrelevant Jeremiah 22.18 Therefore, thus says the Lord in regard to Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, they will not lament for him. Alas, my brother, or alas, sister, they will not lament for him. Alas, for the master, or alas, for his splendor. No, he will be buried with a donkey's burial, dragged off and thrown out beyond the gates of Jerusalem. Jeremiah 36 verse 30 Therefore thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim king of Judah They shall have no one to sit on the throne of David and his dead body shall be cast out to the heat of the day and the frost of the night Jehoiakim was so evil that his son Jehoiachin ended up with a curse Jeremiah 22-28 Jehoiachin who was also known as Jeconiah you Bible students might recognize that name Jeconiah or Coniah as as Jeremiah called him is this man Coniah a despised shattered jar is he an undesirable vessel why have he and his descendants been hurled out and cast into a land they have not known oh land 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 hear the word of the Lord thus says the Lord write this man down childless a man who will not prosper in his days now listen for no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah it's the curse of Coniah the curse of Jeconiah the curse of Jehoiachin from this point forward nobody in that line nobody who followed after Jeconiah would ever have the right to sit on the throne in the kingdom of Judah well, let's begin chapter 24 and this is the first wave if, you're, if you take notes in your Bible you might know this first, first wave of Babylonian captivity 605 BC is verse 1 of chapter 24 in his days Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon came up and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years and then he turned and rebelled against him in 605 BC Nebuchadnezzar had his full strength he had put down Assyria Nineveh the capital of Assyria the great and mighty nation had fallen Egypt was scattering and now Babylon was the first great world kingdom in fact it said that Nebuchadnezzar was the greatest king ever to live the greatest dictator this is the first time that there was absolute world domination by a single kingdom and it was under the kingdom of Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar and the first wave of captivity begins as the cream of the crop of the young men of Judah are carted off to Babylon now we don't see this in our chapter we just have this verse talking specifically about Jehoiakim but at this same time there was a deportation that took place we know about it from another book in the Hebrew scriptures a deportation that included four men by the names of Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah and most famous of all a teenager named Daniel 
Daniel chapter 1 verse 1 says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. By the way, you know what the land of Shinar is, right? Do you know where that is today? It's the kingdom of Iraq. Yeah, Shinar is Iraq. Babylon is in Iraq. He brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. And the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal families and of the nobles, youths in whom there was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, who had ability for serving in the king's court. That was Daniel and his friends, and it happened right here while we're reading about Jehoiakim and his fall. This is what was going on in the life of Daniel, a book we'll get to who knows when. Verse 2 of chapter 24. So the Lord sent against him bands of Chaldeans, bands of Aramaeans, bands of Moabites, and bands of Ammonites. And he sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord which he had spoken through his servants the prophets. Surely at the command of the Lord it came upon Judah to remove them from his sight. Listen to this. Because of all the sins of Manasseh according to all that he had done and also for the innocent blood which he shed. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not forgive. Now this is interesting to me, because just a couple of weeks ago we read about Manasseh, and we studied him, and he was considered the most evil king, aside from Ahaz, in Judah. And he was a brutal and violent and bloody king, and yet, after his own Assyrian captivity, Second Chronicles chapter 33 tells us that Manasseh repented. That he came back. He was released from captivity after humbling himself before the Lord. You remember this story? And he comes back to Judah. And when he comes back, he starts destroying idols. He starts tearing down high places. He tries with all his might to turn it around. Guess what? It didn't work. It was too late. Though this man who had instigated the sin in Israel himself had a changed heart and himself turned around, his sin had already irreversibly infected the people. And there's something of a lesson in this for us. We may as individuals at some point in our life turn it around and give our lives to the Lord, but the reality is the sin that we commit has an infecting power to it. Sin like a cancer can spread out beyond us. We might think, oh, I'm cool. I'm cool with Jesus. And you know, the things I do, I'm going to turn it around. And all the while we have no idea the impact of our sin on others. Manasseh's sin is the reason given, among other reasons. It's one of the primary reasons given for the fall of Judah, even though Manasseh himself repented. Why? Because the people were now running in the same direction that he had run before repenting. The sin was already there. The sin Manasseh began. And James writes in James 1.15, a familiar verse to us, When lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings, brings forth... <laughs> excuse me. It brings forth death. Manasseh's sin is another biblical example of the unstoppable, dominating, cancerous power of sin. That doesn't sound very hopeful. But the reality is, gang, sin is unstoppable. In fact... It will always end in death. Always. 
sin always brings about. Death is the only way to stop sin. But Paul says in Romans 6.5, If we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Sin is always going to bring about death. But I can unite myself with the death of Jesus Christ and that sin that should bring about a death to my body now sits on Jesus' shoulders. And I have been freed from sin by the death that he died. Well, verse 5 tells us the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? Verse 6, So Jehoiakim slept with his fathers, and Jehoiachin his son became king in his place. That phrase, Jehoiakim slept with his fathers, just means he died. And how did he die? Well, he was cast out and he was killed. But Jehoiakim his son, Jehoiachin, his son, became king in his place. And the king of Egypt did not come out of his land again, for the king of Babylon had taken all that belonged to the king of Egypt, watch this, from the brook of Egypt to the river Euphrates. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Let me read it again. He took all that belonged to the king of Egypt from the brook of Egypt to the river Euphrates. We've heard that geographical outline before. That's the exact land that God promised to give to Israel. Genesis chapter 15 verse 18. The Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. And now we see something astounding. We see the king of Babylon owning it. The land God promised to Abraham. The land God covenanted. We talked about this covenant. In fact, Brian talked about it beautifully on Sunday. That God made an an unconditional covenant with Abraham. I am giving this land to you and your descendants. From the river of Egypt all the way to the great river, the river Euphrates. This is 300,000 square miles of land. It is yours, Israel. You have ownership. And this geographical region now is in the hands of Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. That's a totally different topic for another time. But Babylon is Satan's capital. Biblically, go all the way back to Genesis 10 and a man named Nimrod who comes along. Nimrod sets up his capital called Babel and Erech. Erech. You can see it in Genesis 10. That name Erech is where Erech comes from. It's amazing how far these things draw back. That what's happening today is tied all the way back to Genesis itself. But Nimrod, he built Babylon. Nimrod was the first one to get in God's face. He says he was a mighty hunter in the face of the Lord. He was a rebellious man. It was his wife, Semiramis, who the two of them introduced pagan idolatry for the first time in this place called Babylon. Babylon, throughout the scriptures, is to Satan what Jerusalem is to the Lord. It is his capital. And ultimately we'll see it fall in Revelation 18. Unless before we get there... It falls of its own accord here on earth. But that's where it happens, Babylon. So now this geographical region that the Lord gave to Abraham is in the hands of the pagan king of Babylon. And I hear that and I saw the verse about, wait a minute, but God promised this land. He promised it to Abram, to his descendants through Isaac. And if he promised ownership of the land to Israel, why is it now in the hands of Babylon? And the answer is three words. Three words. Ownership, occupancy, 
and obedience. Ownership, occupancy, and obedience. In Genesis 15, through Abraham, the people of Israel were promised unconditional ownership of the land. The land is yours. Belongs to you. Here's the title deed. It is yours. It will always belong to you. 400 years that they were in Egypt, the land still belonged to the people of Abraham. Ownership. But then through Moses and the law, the people received conditional occupancy of the land. Deuteronomy 28 talks about that. As long as you keep my covenant, said the Lord. As long as you follow my statutes and obey my laws, you will live peacefully in the land. And you will prosper in the land. But, if you go head to head with me, if you rebel, you will lose occupancy. Not ownership, but occupancy. Because, number three, obedience is required for occupancy. Ownership was unconditional, but occupancy requires obedience. And it's always that way with the Lord. Ezekiel 36, verse 26. Moreover, the Lord says, I will give you a new heart and I'll put a new spirit within you and I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers. You will be my people and I will be your God. They will come to a place of obedience when God changes their hearts. But do the Jewish people still have ownership? And that's the question often debated today, politically. Who owns the land? And to whom does it really belong? Gang, the Jewish people always have, and do today have, ownership. But until the day Ezekiel prophesied about that worldwide return of the Jews to the land, Ezekiel 37, 38, 39, a day that we've begun to see in our generation all their occupancy was lost because of their rebellion. They had ownership, but the issue of occupancy was at stake. And when they lost it, gang, we have seen not only Jewish history, but listen to me, we see human reality. Because Israel is just a picture of all the rest of us, of what we face, of where we've been. From the days of the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve lost occupancy. All they had to do was obey in one area. Don't eat of this tree. One law. Just obey. One law. And you have occupancy of the Garden of Eden. Well, they disobeyed, as you know, and they were kicked out. They lost occupancy. And the title deed, I believe the title deed of planet Earth, was handed over in that moment, in that failure, to Satan. And he became the God of this world. But owner-occupancy is still intended for the children of God. We just need perfect obedience to reclaim it, and it's ours. That's really all it takes. As a matter of fact, if one of us tonight could stand up and proclaim and, and show by action and behavior perfect obedience, then that one among us could take that title deed back from Satan. We can't do it. We don't have that power. We are a disobedient people. And obedience is required for occupancy. And so along came Jesus. Hebrews 10.7 Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Perfect obedience. Jesus came along not only as the one who could die because he was perfect, but who lived with absolute perfect obedience. And obedience equals occupancy. And Jesus purchases it for us. In fact, Revelation 5 tells us the story. 
John says, I saw on the right hand of him who sat on a throne, the throne, a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and break its seals. Now, if you want to know more about this, go to the Revelation study and listen. But Revelation chapter 5 is fascinating because what is described there in this scroll that nobody can open, it is the description of a title deed. That's how the Jewish people would write a title deed. They would write on the inside, roll it up, and then they would write on the outside what was owed to reclaim a title deed that had been lost or of a land that was in foreclosure. And the angel said, Who's worthy to open this book, to break its seals? No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or even look into it. John says, I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or look into it. John is weeping over our loss. Over the fact that we can't get it back, that there's nobody worthy enough. And one of the elders said to John, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And so Jesus, by his perfect obedience, reclaims that title deed. He reclaims the ownership and the occupancy of planet Earth. He has secured for us occupancy in his kingdom forever. Well, verse 8, going on, Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king. And he reigned three months in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Nehushta. You remember the, the word Nehushta? Nehushtan means piece of brass. So Nehushta, her name was Brass. She was a brassy woman. The daughter of Elnatan of Jerusalem. And Jehoiachin did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father had done. At that time the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, went up to Jerusalem and the city came under siege. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, went out to the king of Babylon. He and his mother and his officials and his captains and his servants... So the king of Babylon took him captive in the eighth year of his reign. This is the second wave now of Babylonian captivity. Second wave, 597 B.C. when Jehoiachin is taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar. He reigned three months. You might say, well, wait a minute. It says in the eighth year of his reign. That's the eighth year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign that he came out and took Jehoiachin. But Jehoiachin was only three months on the throne in Judah before taken into captivity and things began to get very ugly for Judah. Verse 13, he carried out from there all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He cut in pieces all the vessels of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord just as the Lord had said. And then he led away into exile all Jerusalem and all the captains and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. So he led Jehoiachin Jehoiachin away into exile into Babylon. Also the king's mother and the king's wives and his officials and the leading men of the land. He led away into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. All the men of valor, 7,000. And the craftsmen and the smiths, 1,000, all strong and fit for war. And these the king of Babylon brought into exile into Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar in these three waves is systematically gutting Judah. In the same way that you would gut a fish, he's leaving nothing left to rebel against his rule and authority. But it was the hand of the Lord that gave Nebuchadnezzar this power. Verse 17, 
Then the king of Babylon made his uncle, Mataniah, king in his place, and changed his name to Zedekiah. Why all the name changes? Notice Pharaoh Necho did it too. He took Eliakim and he made him Jehoiakim. And now we have Mataniah, but he's changed to Zedekiah. What's the idea here? Mataniah, Josiah's youngest son, his name means gift of Yahweh. Gift of Yahweh. King of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, comes along and renames him Zedekiah, which means Yahweh is righteous. Why would Nebuchadnezzar rename this king and set him up on the throne and call him Yahweh is righteous? Well, first of all, because the renaming of a person was considered a, a sovereign prerogative. A king could come in anytime he wanted and change anybody's name. He could have called him Goober if he wanted to. He chose Zedekiah. But why Zedekiah? Why set this man up and call him Yahweh is righteous? Because Nebuchadnezzar is sending a message to the people. Your God Yahweh put me in charge of you. Your God made me the boss. Yahweh is right. I should be king. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar is, I believe, saying. Well, verse 18, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king. And he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For through the anger of the Lord, this came about in Jerusalem and Judah until he cast them out from his presence. And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. So politically he's set up by the king of Babylon, but eventually he succumbs to the pressure of the people who are saying, we had to align with Egypt and fight back. He tries to do that, and he does it unsuccessfully. Verse 1 of chapter 25. Now we're to 588 B.C., getting close. In the ninth year of his reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came, he and all his army, against Jerusalem. He camped against it and built a siege wall all around it. So the city was under siege until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city there was no food for the people of the land. And then the city was broken into. All the men of war fled by night by way of the gate between the two walls beside the king's garden, though the Chaldeans were all around the city. And they went by the way of the Arabah, that is the desert. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. So they're still in Judah. And all his army was scattered from him. Well, they captured the king and they brought him to the king of Babylon at Riblah and he passed sentence on him. Watch this, verse 7. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. Then put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him with bronze fetters and brought him to Babylon. And with that, the kings of Judah are finished. You will not see another king rise to the throne in Judah. Babylon busted out and broke in. Zedekiah is blinded, bound, and brought back to Babylon. But what's interesting here is this brings up a conflict in prophecy. You see, we have two separate prophets prophesying two separate things about Zedekiah and how his life would end. Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 34, verse 3, said, You will not escape from his hand. You will surely be captured and delivered into his hand, and you will see the king of Babylon eye to eye, and he will speak with you face to face, and you will go to Babylon. Ezekiel, 
prophesied slightly differently. Ezekiel 12.13, he said, I will also spread my net over him, and he will be caught in my snare, declares the Lord. And I will bring him to Babylon, in the land of the Chaldeans, yet he will not see it, though he will die there. Now, if you were in Judah at the time, and you heard these two different prophecies, you'd have to ask, how could both be true? One says he will never see Babylon. The other one says he will see them and speak to the king of Babylon face to face. How can it work out? Well, he did see the king of Babylon face to face, but it was while he was in Judah. And then they put out his eyes and took him to Babylon. So both prophecies, though seemingly contradictory at the time, were completely fulfilled and were completely true. And that's the beauty of the word of God. We can read things, and sometimes, especially prophecies yet to be fulfilled, we might read and go, how's that going to work with this? I don't get it. And it will, perfectly and beautifully, just as it always has. Now we go into the third and final wave of Babylonian captivity, 586 B.C., verse 8. On the seventh day of the fifth month, which was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. Verse 9. He burned the house of the Lord, the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem, even every great house, he burned with fire. It's the beginning of the final wave and history records that in 586 B.C. on the day the Jews now remember annually as Tisha B'Av the temple was destroyed. Tisha B'Av simply means the ninth of Av. Now you might look at your scriptures and say well wait a minute it, it says that it was the seventh on the fifth month. Av is the fifth month but it was on the seventh day verse 8 when Nebuchadnezzar and Captain of the Guard came in. That's right. He came in on the seventh day but it was on the ninth day two days later that the temple was destroyed. And Jews the world around, even to this day, celebrate the ninth of Av. Well, celebrate is probably not the best word. They mourn. It is a day of fasting and sorrow. As a matter of fact, when the month of Av begins, from the beginning of the month of Av through the ninth, for three weeks they mourn. For three weeks they remember. You might think, wow. They mourn over the loss of the temple in 586 B.C.? Let it go. I mean, come on. Time to move forward, right? The Mishnah, which is the book of Jewish oral tradition, states that Tisha B'Av commemorates what is called the five calamities. The first calamity that happened on the ninth of Av. They believe it was that very day when the twelve spies returned to Kadesh Barnea to tell the people about the land. And on that day, the ninth of Av, two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, says, it's ours for the taking. Yeah, they're giants, but we'll knock them down. Ten of the spies said, there's no way that we can do this. And the people's hearts failed, and they wandered in the desert for 40 years. On the ninth of Av, that's the first calamity. The second calamity is the destruction of the first temple in, by Babylon there in Jerusalem. What's absolutely amazing is historically in A.D. 70 the second temple was also destroyed on the 9th of Av by Rome. That's the third calamity. The fourth calamity was the raising of Jerusalem to the ground one year later on the 9th of Av, A.D. 71. You may know this if you've gone to Jerusalem or studied these things but Jerusalem is a city built on cities on cities on cities. It's about 27 cities deep. 
It's been conquered more than 35 times, but the whole entire city has been wiped out and raised to the ground 27 times. So when you stand on a street in Jerusalem, you're standing above 27 cities that are below it. That the city just gets built on. That's what they would do in those days. Wipe it out, build it up. Wipe that out, build on top of that. Wipe that out, build on top of that. And so one year after the destruction of the second temple... Jerusalem was raised to the ground. That's the fourth calamity. And the fifth calamity was then in 135 AD, the quelling of the Bar Kokhba revolt by Emperor Hadrian. This was the final revolt in Israel. Bar Kokhba led this revolt and they fought back against Rome valiantly, but they were finally put down and destroyed. Jerusalem was renamed Aelia Capitolina, and Judah and Samaria were renamed Palestinia, which is where they were named Palestinians comes from in the first place those are the five calamities but check this out on the ninth of Av Tisha B'Av historians have also associated other Jewish tragedy throughout history it was on this day in 1290 AD that Jews were expelled from England it was on this day in 1492 we sing about Columbus sailing the ocean blue well at that time the Jews were expelled from Spain And there are some who think it's possible Columbus was at least half Jew, which is why he got on the boat and sailed for America. But it was at that time, on the 9th of Av, the Jews were expelled from Spain. On the 9th of Av, 1670, the last of the Jewish people were driven out of Vienna. In 1914, World War II broke out on the 9th of Av, setting the stage for the German resentment that would lead to the Holocaust of World War II and... On the 9th of Av in 1940, Himmler presented his final solution to the Jewish problem to the Nazi party, that is the extermination of the Jews. And amazingly, it was on the 9th of Av, 14, or 1942, that Hitler began the massive deportation of the Warsaw Ghetto, sending hundreds of thousands of Jews to a little place called Treblinka, where they would be massacred. No wonder on the ninth of Av the Jewish people mourn. This is a people that who, who throughout history have experienced the worst of the worst of the worst. No other people group in history has ever experienced what the Jews have and survived to tell about it. No other group has gone up against such persecution and remained alive. I'm talking about a nation of people. The entire book of Lamentations records Jeremiah's sorrow over the Babylonian captivity beginning then on the 9th of Av. And listen to the lament now of the psalmist as he writes in Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Upon the willows in the midst of it, we hung our harps. For there our captors demanded of us songs, and our tormentors demanded mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. Can you imagine for a moment being driven out of America, seeing our country completely destroyed? Imagine how you felt when the towers fell on 9-11. And magnify that by the falling of every city in this country, and being driven out and held captive in another country. And then having that country say, Sing us your national anthem. Sing God Bless America. Do you think you could even get through the song? The Babylonians demanded that of the Jews. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? He writes. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand 
forget her skill. And may my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy, remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom the day of Jerusalem. They said, raise it, raise it to its very foundation. O daughter of Babylon, you devastated one. How blessed will be the one who repays you with the recompense with which you have repaid us. How blessed will be the one who seizes and dashes your little ones against the rock. Nothing like this. This deportation, this captivity, this destruction of Judah, nothing like it had ever happened in the history of Israel. But it was just the beginning of the Jewish experience of 2,500 years. Does this people have a right to mourn? You bet they do. Verse 10 of 2 Kings 25. After the temple is burned, all the houses of Jerusalem burned, all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. Why did they do that? To, To take away any defense. The rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon and the rest of the people, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away into exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest people of the land to be vine dressers, dressers and, and plowmen to keep the land so it didn't just become overrun with weeds. Now the bronze pillars, which were in the house of the Lord, and the stands and the bronze sea which were in the house of the Lord and the Chaldeans broke in pieces and carried the bronze to Babylon they took away the pots the shovels the snuffers the spoons and all the bronze vessels which were used in temple service the captain of the guard also took away the fire pans and the basins what was fine gold and what was fine silver the two pillars the one sea the stands which Solomon had made for the house of the Lord the bronze of all these vessels was beyond weight The height of one pillar was 18 cubits and a bronze capital was on it. The height of the capital was 3 cubits with a network of pomegranates on the capital all around, all of bronze. And the second pillar was like these with network. (laughs) You might think as you read through this, why is he saying this in verse 17? I think the writer is remembering. He's thinking about his beloved temple. He's jotting down these things and writing from the position of captivity in Babylon as he writes... And he's remembering the beauty of that pillar. Oh, it had the pomegranates around it. It was pure bronze. It stood tall. And then the captain of the guard took Sarah, the chief priest, and Zephaniah, the second priest, and the three officers of the temple. From the city, he took one official who was overseer of the men of war. Five of the king's advisors who were found in the city and the scribe of the captain of the army who mustered the people of the land and 60 men of the people of the land who were found in the city. Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, took them and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and the king of Babylon struck them down. He put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamat. So Judah was led away into exile from its land. It was a land that was owner-occupied by obedience. But when disobedience came, occupancy was denied. The people were driven out just as the Lord promised would happen. He said it a thousand years earlier through Moses. He gave every warning. In fact, you go back to Deuteronomy 27, 28, 29. You have Mount Jerusalem, and Mount Ebal, the Mount of Blessing, the Mount of Curses. And he takes the people through an exercise going back and forth. If you will obey me and listen to my word and teach it to your children... 
and you're going to live long in the land. But if you disobey, you will lose your occupancy and you will be driven out. And we see historically God means what He says. And He says what He means. But here's the wonderful thing. I was not looking forward to ending this this study, honestly, because it comes down to destruction and devastation and bummer. Have a nice night. But God does something beautiful here. For even in the destruction of Judah, we see the mercy and patience of God. He maintains a Jewish presence in the land. There has always been a Jewish presence in the land. A remnant in Judah. Because he remembered his promises to Abraham. Verse 22. As for the people who were left in the land of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon had left, he appointed Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, over them. Gedaliah was actually a friend of Jeremiah's and he was a good guy. And he understood, as Jeremiah understood, that this was a punishment of the people that they needed to accept. And in fact, unlike the northern kingdom of Israel, this punishment on the southern kingdom had a time limit to it. You could say it was a horrible time out. It was a 70 year time out. Gedaliah knew this. Jeremiah proclaimed this. It would be 70 years. Accept your punishment. Gedaliah's role was to keep the people in line, to help them accept this discipline by the Lord, which Jeremiah again declared in Jeremiah 29, verses 10 and 11. He declared it would be a 70 year captivity. And so the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, puts Gedaliah in place as the governor, but he's the right guy to be in place, and he's telling the people, settle down, calm down, just obey the laws, obey this king Nebuchadnezzar, and we will be okay. But when all the captains of the forces, they and their men, verse 23, heard that the king of Babylon had appointed Gedaliah governor, they came to Gedaliah to Mizpah, namely Ishmael, the son of Netaniah, and Yohanan, the son of Korea, and Sarahiah, the son of Tanhumet, and Netot, well, there's a good name for you, Netophatite, and Jeazaniah, the son of Meachatite, they and their men. Gedaliah swore to them and their men and he said do not be afraid of the servants of the Chaldeans here's his advice live in the land serve the king of Babylon and it will be well with you but it came about in the seventh month that Ishmael the son of Netaniah the son of Elishama of the royal family came with ten men and struck Gedaliah down so that he died along with the Jews and the Chaldeans who were with him at Mizpah Then all the people, both small and great, and the captains of the forces arose and went to Egypt, for they were afraid of the Chaldeans. The people should have listened. They're still not listening. They still aren't getting it. They're doing kind of what I did when I was a kid and punishment came and you stick the book in the back of your pants. I don't know if you ever tried that, those of you who had spanking parents like I did. You get a nice solid book, tuck it in back there when the spanking came. Of course, you didn't think ahead the fact that your parents would hear while you're smiling all the while they wouldn't take their punishment they rejected it Dang, there are times when God is disciplining us and we would do well to recognize the discipline and accept it and allow it to bring us to the point of repentance not more rebellion they wouldn't accept the discipline and so they murdered Gedaliah they made things harder for themselves running off to Egypt And it's a depressing end to this once great kingdom. But again, there is light at the end of the tunnel. Watch this. Verse 27. 
Now it came about in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah. Jehoiachin, remember, has another name. Jeconiah. In the exile of Jehoiachin, or Jeconiah, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, that evil Merodach, which is a great name, evil Merodach, like they call him evil Knievel Merodach, He's the king of Babylon, so he has now replaced Nebuchadnezzar. In the year that he became king, he released Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. Evil Merodach is actually a good guy. His name is not evil as in bad, it's just translated or just written that way, but evil Merodach, his name means man of Merodach. Very simply. But this guy is a good king, and he comes along and he looks at the king of Judah, and more than all the other kings who are now captive in Babylon, he elevates this king. He gives him a place at the table. He gives him new clothes. He gives him an allowance. Probably more than my kids get. And it came about that he released him from prison, verse 28, spoke kindly to him, set his throne above the throne of the kings who were with him in Babylon. Jehoiachin changed his prison clothes, had his meals in the king's presence regularly all the days of his life, and for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king, a portion for each day, all the days of his life. Two final things to note as we finish this book. Number one, the Lord's compassion to the last of the kings. The last surviving king of Israel, an evil man, a wicked guy. But for the sake of his love for Judah, God is showing compassion through this evil Merodach. Compassion to the last of the kings. In this dark tunnel of captivity, we see the light of kindness. And I love how that happens. At the end of the books, throughout the Bible, we see touches of mercy. Broad strokes where the Lord still shows grace still shows hopefulness, still shows light. But here's the other part of this. Not only do we see the Lord's compassion to the last of the kings, we see the Lord's continuance of the line of the kings. We see in this man, Jeconiah, Jehoiachin, he's still alive. The book of kings does not end with the line of kings destroyed forever. This man is still alive and being taken care of there in Babylon. And we can say, and I was reading this thinking, oh, that's great. That's great. There's hope. The line is still not broken. The line through this man that will go ultimately all the way to Jesus. We know that's going to happen, right? Isn't that great news? And in fact, Genesis 49.10, through Jacob, this prophecy was given, this great prophecy, the scepter or the rule shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So in other words, Judah, you're not going to completely lose that power or rule. You're not going to lose that authority until, until Shiloh comes. Until Messiah comes. You will have a remnant. You'll, there will be a line that remains all the way to the person of Messiah. The scepter had not fully departed. Jehoiachin, Jeconiah, is still alive. There is hope. And then I thought, wait a minute. There's hope, but there's a curse. What about Jeconiah's curse? Didn't the Lord say no descendant of Jehoiachin would ever again sit on the throne? 
We read that verse earlier, Jeremiah 22.30. Write this man down childless, a man who will not prosper in his days. No man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. No man coming from Jeconiah would have the right to sit on the throne. And there's a problem here. Because in this surviving line of Judah, we've got to find a way. Because our King Jesus of the line of Judah is to sit on the throne, right? So quickly, we, we turn over and we start looking at Matthew's genealogy to see, okay, well maybe he's not listed there. Maybe Jeconiah's not there. Oh, he's there. He's right there in the genealogy Matthew writes out. And legally, no descendant of Caniah could sit on the throne. How do we answer this? You Bible students know this answer. It's hidden in the genetic code of a young woman who also descended from the line of one of David's non-cursed offspring, David's son, Nathan. You see, Jeconiah came through the line of Solomon and on down. But through the line of Nathan, also a son and a legal or, or an heir to the throne, Nathan comes all the way down through the genetic code of this woman named Mary. And in Luke chapter 3 verse 23, which traces Jesus' genealogy through Mary's side and not through Joseph, but through Mary, it says, When he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Eli. But here's the cool thing. Joseph was not the son of Eli. Joseph's father was a different man. Joseph's father was named Jacob, not Eli. And so when it says in Luke that Jesus was supposed the son of Joseph, the son of Eli, Eli was actually Jesus' grandfather. Mary was the daughter of Eli. And so when you trace back, and this is why Luke's genealogy and Matthew's genealogy are different. When you trace back Luke's genealogy of Jesus, it's through the line of Mary. When you trace Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, it is through the line of Joseph, which is a cursed line. But check this out. Luke delineates the uncursed line through Mary. Matthew shows the different line. Mary's virgin-born son was legally adopted by Joseph, who as a descendant of Jehoiachin, or Caniah, transmitted the legal right to the throne by adoption. Jesus was not cursed because he was not a son of Joseph. But because he was adopted by Joseph, the curse didn't pass to him, but the legal right was transmitted to Jesus. You see how God sidestepped the curse? How he found a way around it? And so Matthew writes in Matthew chapter 1, verse 11, Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon... After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel. And Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud. Abihud of Eliakim. Eliakim of Adzor. Adzor was the father of Zadok. Zadok of Achim. Achim, the father of Eliud. Eliud was the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Matan. Matan, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. And so, though the kings fail miserably, the king of kings is still on his way. Lord Jesus, for all these things and for the wonder of your word, we thank you. We thank you for handing us, Father, the book of Kings. We are amazed at how breathtakingly horrible they were. 
How they were unable to obey. How king after king fell in great wickedness. But we're also impressed, Father, by those kings who walked like David walked. Because they remind us that even amongst us we have the choice to walk as the son of David, our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray if nothing else that our study through kings illuminates our need for the king, Jesus. And we look forward to knowing more about him. And really we look forward to seeing you, Jesus, when you come. Father, bless the study of your word tonight. And go with us now in Jesus' name. Amen.